Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, please, to the book of Acts, On the first week, we talked about the issue of the interaction between the power systems of the world and the power that Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1. And you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. What does that mean in the world of Caesar? Caesar's the one with power. So what did Jesus mean? So that's the first week. The second week, on last Wednesday, I preached on what really happened at Pentecost. And uh, we had a wonderful service here, and people received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. I'm not going to always give altar calls or invitations. It's a, a Wednesday night study, but I just felt one cannot preach or teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit for 35 minutes and not give people the opportunity to receive. And I was delighted with the number of people who, who did. Now, if you'll take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to begin reading... At verse 41, this is the passage that begins after the pyrotechnics of the upper room, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the wind, the fire, the excitement of it, the people that have been saved, all of that. And and now what happens uh, after this? What's, What's the outcome we said the church is born at Pentecost on last, Sunday, on last Wednesday. The church is born at Pentecost. What does the church look like? So we'll start reading at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. Let me just pause for a moment. This this doesn't mean they were frightened. They were afraid. It means that wholesome fear of God, the sense of awe that God was in the house and not to be tampered with. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. After um, after a wedding... There's, there's always that uh, moment when the wedding is over. The bride and groom leave, and you, you stand there, and maybe nobody senses this as much as pastors, but you stand there, and the, you know everything's starting to sag. The, the decorations begin to sag. There's rice. Now I don't think they let you throw rice. Now I think it's you, people throw birdseed or something. And... Uh, and it just, it just is sort of the after-wedding blahs. People's, the women's dresses are rumpled. The mother 
you know, as goes, people are starting to leave and drift away and there's cake on the floor and it, it just, the weddings, after the wedding is just kind of a letdown. After a party, depending on the party that you attend, it's worse. After a great victory, um, I, I, I never understand why in a city, when, when their professional or college team wins a championship, why do they burn down their own city? I've never grasped that. Why do they wreck their own town? But after a victory, there's often just confusion and turmoil and, and, and it, it, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't look good. It's over. But after Pentecost, there's no sense of that. It doesn't say, and everybody left, and the upper room was forgotten, and it just, it just didn't do much. The 3,000 people shrank to 2,000, and the 2,000 shrank to 1,000, and they all moved away, and people were kind of discouraged. It, it tells you that what happened at Pentecost had an enduring effect on the culture of the, of the church. So the announcement of Pentecost, Pentecost changed everything. It was the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the prophet Joel from, from the second chapter of Joel. It was, it was that explosive, dynamic, powerful moment. But what it created was not simply an individual experience of the outpouring of grace, but a sense of community with a God-created culture. And what is the culture of the Pentecost church? Uh, you notice I didn't say Pentecostal church. And I'm not talking about the culture of what kind of songs we sing or how long the service is or whether who shouts or doesn't. Or in, I'm talking about what is the spiritual context which is the, the self-definition of the church. First of all, it centers, we see it in this, this passage, which we just read. It centers around the sacraments of baptism and communion. Everything else can vary. Now in the Roman church, in the, in the Roman Catholic church, there are seven sacraments. Uh, in the, for example, uh, marriage is a sacrament in the Catholic church and uh, ordination by the way, is a sacrament in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. I, I love ordination. I've preached ordination services in multiple denominations. I love taking part. I'm a Protestant. I don't believe ordination is a sacrament. But it's really, really close. <laughs> There's something in the ordination service that just moves me deeply. And, and so there may be some churches that will have more. Um, it could be that in the church of God, there are three is that is foot washing. So the Roman Catholic church has seven. The church of God, Cleveland has three. So there may be some that have more, but throughout the church, the two defining sacraments are water baptism and Holy communion. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the, the initiation experience into the context and the community of the church is not simply somebody pinning a badge on you. It's not simply getting a membership card. It is a life 
death resurrection experience. We are raised up to newness of life in the context of the church. That's what I was saying in the introduction about what the pastor said. Every now and again, is I'm, you know, this old dude teaching in the NICL and all the young preachers and everybody. And every now and again, I encounter some young person that says, I love Jesus. I love God. I just don't love the church. I said, well, learn to love it because God does. You, you're, you're required to love what God loves. And, the, and God loves the church. Jesus is in the midst of his church. And, and that the initiation into that culture is experiential, salvation, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's empowering, and it is death and resurrection. You think about that. What if, what if you said, people say, I want to join your club, the Kiwanis or the Lions Club or the Civitan or whatever it is, the Democrats or the Republicans or whatever it is. You say, I want to join. Great, no problem. We're going to hold you under the water until you die and then raise you up. <laughs> it would thin the ranks, my friend. But that is exactly what it means to join the church. I mean, it's not just simply receiving a membership card. The second thing is communion. Communion is about, and I'm not giving an entire teaching tonight on, on sacerdotal theology, I'm not, I, but I do want to just say this. In communion, we not only commune with Christ, this do in remembrance of me. We not only receive his body and blood, we not only receive communion with him, we are communing with each other. There's a reason that communion and community share a root, a root experience. We, we take communion together, all together. That, that is a critical element of the primitive church. The second is preaching and teaching. If you, if you notice, it says, and they continued steadfastly, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. So that they believed that hearing and receiving, preaching and teaching was fundamental to the context and the culture of the, of the post-Pentecost community. The third is signs and wonders. Look at verse 43. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So we talked about, on last week, we talked about what happened at Pentecost was that the church was born, and it was born into an atmosphere of the supernatural. So I want to say something to you about the appropriateness of believing for miracles in the context of a resurrected community of faith living under the teaching and preaching and ministry of the word is the expectation, the faith expectation of signs and wonders. Now, there's a balance, and I want you to hear it. A lady said to me one time, she said, Dr. Elton, I'd like for you to go, you and Allison to go with me. I want you to take you to hear this preacher. Everybody that he prays with is healed. Now, listen, listen to Dr. Mark. Any, any preacher that tells you that every person they pray with gets healed, immediately put your hand over your wallet and put your arm around your wife. No, nobody has 100%. 
I've prayed with people that I wanted to see healed so badly I could taste it. And I, and, and I didn't see the miracle in the way and in the time that I wanted it. But that has never discouraged me for praying for the next one. And that the, the context of faith, our humanity is there. We're, we're real. We're human. I, anybody that claims 100% success in miracles and signs and wonders, I, that, that's just goofy. On the other hand, it's not going to stop me from praying for the next one. And believing, I've seen in the 53 years of my ministry, I've seen miracles, out and out miracles. We were in a church, a Methodist church of all things in Lima, Peru, some, in, in um, excuse me, in Costa Rica. And uh, a man from the outside came in with a small boy, maybe eight or ten, and he had uh, metal braces on his legs like Forrest Gump. And we were in the middle of the service. And the man just came in off of the street and walked up to the front. The pastor went down and they were talking and I could hear it all. Finally, I just stopped preaching and I said, what is it? He said, well, this man wants us to pray for his little boy. And I've told him to have a seat and wait till the preaching's over. I said, no, let's don't do that. Let's pray. So I said, call the other pastors. And they came around and the man stood holding the little boy like this so that his back, the boy, little boy's back was against his chest and his legs extended toward me. I was here and the other pastors gathered around and we began to pray. And I felt that child's leg turn and push into my chest just like that. And this, this will show you the lack of faith in the man who's teaching you about faith. I just said, well, I'm just making that happen. You know, I'd leaned against him or something. And then I heard the pastor of the church say, oh, mi Dios, oh, my God. And the little boy's leg turned and twisted and right in front of us. And his dad unbuckled that child's leg brace, and that little boy ran around that church. I, I could go on and on and on in a half a century of ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. I could tell you on and on and on. I can also tell you a, a lady came with seven blind little girls to an open-air crusade I preached in Kumasi, and they held onto a rope and walked behind her, seven little blind African girls and came forward for healing, and I wanted those little girls healed. I wanted so badly. And when I walked, watched them walk away, the lady led the little girls away, holding on to the same rope, their same little blind eyes. It was, it was hard for me. It was hard for me. But you know what I came to? In the context of this human reality, of who we are, this thing of people, and people, just folks, have been summoned, baptized, raised to new life in a context of the declaration of God's eternal word, and in that we are to expect the atmosphere of signs and wonders. We don't get to demand them, and we don't get to run it, but it is still real. It's still real.
A third part of the atmosphere of the early church may not seem, it may not seem all that spiritual or it may, may not seem all that important. And that was, is joy, hospitality, and generosity. It was from the very beginning. It was, I got tickled a little bit when we did the offering tonight. I thought to myself, I've been places where I thought two men with masks on would come and demand my money. And, <laughs> but but I, I, I just want to say this, this is actually, the offering is actually very much a part of the most primitive context of the church. From the very beginning, we were a giving, sharing, loving, and joyful community. That's, that's who we are. We, we just, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit are not supposed to make you mean. The, the, a mean Pentecostal is an oxymoron. Frankly, a mean, a mean Christian is an oxymoron. It's supposed to be about joy and giving and hospitality and sharing and affirmation. That's the character of the church from the very beginning. And what did it cause? Now listen to this. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And and having favor with all the people. What people? It means those who are not in that community of joy and giving and sharing and baptism and resurrection and holy communion and preaching and teaching, that context and culture which was created and defined and in-breathed by God, there are folks out there who may say, I'm not in that, but those are, not, those are wonderful people. Those are wonderful people. So far, so good. So far, so good. But actually, the seeds of conflict are actually revealed in the context of the community. Listen to the words. Having favor with all the people. Now, let me just tell you something. I I don't mean to live in a dark universe. But when anything, I don't care whether it's uh, politics business or or religion, whatever it is, when something, someone, some part begins to receive extended favor with a wider group of, of the populace, the powers that be, whatever that is, will feel threatened. That That's why, I'm, and I, I'm not, probably shouldn't even say this, but the political philosophy of populism. Whether you are a populist or not, I'm not even saying, what I'm saying, why is it so threatening? Why is it so threatening to the political establishment? It is because it bypasses them. And they had favor with all the people. That sounds like a wonderful thing. Wouldn't it be nice if the church had favor with all the people? And I think you have a lot of favor in this community. But if you favor with everybody in Buford, says, oh, that's a wonderful church. Oh, Pastor Joey's a wonderful person. Oh, the Buford Church of God. I promise you, as good as that sounds, there would be somebody somewhere that that would make very nervous. So 
That is basically what got Jesus killed. Remember, barkeeps and brothel owners did not crucify Jesus. Who crucified Jesus was the political and religious establishment. The, the leadership that felt threatened and the common, it says, and the common people heard him gladly. The masses heard him gladly, the common people. It was the establishment, the political establishment, Rome, and the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin, that were threatened not by what he said. They didn't really care anything Jesus said. They didn't care about the church. They didn't care. That's what threatened them was the favor with the populace. So the context which is created here that is altogether positive, filled with love and joy and, and faith and signs and wonders and com holy communion and water baptism. This is the church, a more beautiful picture of the church in action, the life context, the community of the church can hardly be imagined than the end of the, third, of the second chapter of Acts, which almost nobody reads, by the way, because they read the upper room and then they think that's the end of the chapter. But the church that's created in the upper room looks like this. We're supposed to, people are supposed to look at us and say, well, I don't know, I may not ever join, but man, they're wonderful. It's like the two skunks that were walking past the paper mill. The one said to the other one, what is that smell? And so the other one said, I don't know, but I got to get me some. I believe people ought to go past the street and, and, and somebody said, what's going on in, what's going on in there? I don't know. I don't know. I, but I'm telling you, those are the most wonderful people in the world. Those are the most, they are joyful. They're happy. They're loving. All this angry, embattled Christianity of the 20, late 20th and early 21st century is not the picture of the book of Acts. This is probably not helping you at all, but I feel a lot better. I have, I've been needing to. Get this off of my chest. Now, so there's the, you can see the rising conflict. So you have this growing, burgeoning community of faith and joy and miracles, signs and wonders. The miracle in the third chapter of Acts is not the first. It says, and there were many signs and wonders done by the apostles. Everything's going okay. Everything's fine until... Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength, and he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Look at verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened to him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch which is called Solomon's greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, a straight out theological statement of the sonship of Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and just and desired a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted unto you and kill the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. This is, can you grasp this moment? There is this huge tumult of people in the temple, a miracle so huge. This miracle is worked on a man that everybody in Jerusalem knows. They see him begging at the same place every day. And now he's jumping and leaping and running around and he's clutching Peter and John and he keeps yelling, these are the men, these are the men that just heal me. I can walk, I can run, I can, I, all those things he's sharing. All the, and all the people run and they're all saying, tell us more about it, tell us more about it. And then you have Simon Peter with this astonishing boldness from Pentecost. He says, this was done in the name of Jesus whom you gave to Pilate and got him crucified. I mean, it's amazing to me that Peter lasted as long as he did. <laughs> Don't you see that's the, that's the spark to the dry tender of the threat of this rising community? What, how, why are they threatening? They're joyful. They're generous. They're gracious. They're hospitable. They believe in the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. They believe in, they worship in the temple. They sing the same songs. Who, why are they threatening? Because the power of God has bypassed the established religious community and is operating in the context of where people are and all the people. That phrase repeated over and over again in chapter 3 is exactly what puts the spark to the flame, to the tinder, and causes flame between the religious community and the, and the rising church. So what happens? What happens is predictable. The religious leadership under the authority of, of the Sadducees there, I think you probably know this, but let me just give you there. There are really three different groups of religious Jewish religious leaders in the first century in, in Jerusalem. There is the Pharisees that we hear so much about, but the Pharisees, um, 
the, the good thing about the Pharisees, they were legalistic in the extreme, but the good thing about the Pharisees was they believed in miracles, they believed in angels, and they believed in the resurrection. Then there was a, a, another party called the Sadducees, and they were what, I hate to use modern words, but they were what you might call more liberal. They didn't, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And, and, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in signs and wonders. They didn't believe in healings like this. They were a very, um, just about the, the current thing. And then there's a third party called the Herodians. And they are totally and completely compromised. They're just, they just go along, get along. We have to deal with the Romans. We have to deal with Herod. Everybody quit, quit acting so Jewish and quit acting so religious. So now comes this fourth group that is enjoying huge favor with all the people. Everybody's saying how wonderful they are. Everybody's saying, look, all the signs and wonders. Look how this man has been healed. Look how this man... What happens is 100% predictable. The forces of the current establishment rush in and arrest Peter and John and put them in jail. Uh, And it's late in the evening, so they just put them in and let them spend the night in the jail overnight. And they bring them in the next morning, and what they demand to know is this. Why are you preaching in this name? Why are you preaching in this name of Jesus? That's what they don't want. Why not? Remember, we are not years from the crucifixion. We are not even many months from the crucifixion. There's only 50 days from the crucifixion to Pentecost And then it says, God added to them daily. We don't know how many days. It doesn't tell us. But suppose it was 30 days. Suppose it was 60 days. We're still only three or four or five months from the crucifixion. And these are the people who only a few months ago screamed, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Whom? Jesus. Now, these people say, why are you doing this miracle? In the name of Jesus. So you can see that this is infuriating to them. And so they they bring Peter and John in for an examination. And Peter is, it's unbelievable what Peter says. Look at verse 11 of the fourth chapter of the fourth chapter of Acts. This is the stone which was set at naught of you. Builders. He doesn't say the builders. This this is from the book of Psalms. What is it? 118, isn't it? And where he says the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, which is rejected by the builders has become the chief cornerstone. So Peter personalizes it. And he says the builders that rejected the Messiah, the messianic cornerstone of Judaism, the builders who rejected that is you. You builders. He doesn't say the builders. He says, this is it. Then look at the next verse. Verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Wow. Wow. I mean, this this guy, he's a fisherman. 
know if any of you ever known any very many professional fishermen. They're not a sophisticated crew. This guy stands up. He, he lowers the guns to deck level and loads with grape shot. He says the passage in Psalms that says the chief cornerstone will be rejected by the builders. Jesus is the chief cornerstone and you're the builders. You've rejected the Messiah and there's no other way. You can't even be saved without this name. There's no other name to be saved. Look at the next verse. It, there are some verses of scripture that somehow or another are just, they tickle me. I think it's funny. Verse uh, 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. <laughs> I don't know why that verse just tickles the life out of me. He said, these guys are just ignorant and nothing is stupid, uneducated. Wow. Listen to them. <laughs> It's so powerful. And it, and it says, and they marveled. Who is Peter that spontaneously, he, he is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18. He is quoting from Psalms, spontaneous fisherman. He's not a rabbi. He's in the presence of the top religious leadership of his day. He is undaunted. He is unintimidated. He is if this, if this is ignorance, we, we need an outpouring of ignorance in the church. And I, I don't mean that. I'm an educated man. I paid a lot to have it. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to education. What I'm saying is it is no substitute for the anointing and the power and the, and the boldness of Pentecost. So they didn't really know what to do with them. It's, but there is an amazing thing here. They say, look, that a notable miracle hath been done. We can't deny that. There is a great miracle. This man, he was crippled, now he can walk. But what we've got to do is keep this from happening anymore. We've got to keep this from spreading. Now think what that, think what that says about those men. We would rather that the lame stay lame, the blind stay blind, the lost stay lost, the doomed stay damned. We would rather that than that the name of Jesus be glorified and we lose our position of religious leadership. It is the exact opposite of the character and nature of the church. Generosity, the centrality of Jesus, communion, fellowship, humility, hospitality, and generosity opposed to authoritative power and, use, and dealing with the flesh in every way. It's the perfect contrast. So they, they say to Simon Peter and John, they said, we want this stopped. We, we command you, do not preach in this name anymore. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it is right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, you judge. <laughs> the boldness, the boldness of Pentecost. When I read this, I realize what, what sissies Christians have become. What pansies. This, this, 
these guys standing up in front of the same trial judges that just months before sentenced Jesus to be crucified, they could be next. And Peter says, you are the builders who have rejected the Messiah of the Jewish people. The chief cornerstone prophesied by Deuteronomy, prophesied in Psalms, the fulfillment of Joel chapter two, and you've rejected him. And you cannot even be saved. You're going to hell. There's no other way to be saved apart from the name of Jesus. And it says, and they said, these guys are ignorant. How can they talk to us like this? Wow. So they, uh, they return. I want you to look at chapter four, beginning with verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. Okay, pause. Let's suppose this is a contemporary American church. And some mayor or some governor or somebody says, I want this stopped. I don't want you to do this. Don't go there. Don't preach that. Don't say this. Whatever. And so they say, okay, let's have a prayer meeting. Let's have a prayer meeting. What, what do we pray? Let's pray that God will protect us. Let's pray that God will guide us. Let's, we, let's pray for shelter, whatever. How would we pray? I'm, I'm, I mean, challenge yourself. How do you see us praying at that point? But how did they pray? Verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were together, were, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, O Lord, behold their threatenings. Look, they don't ask for safety. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Whew. Do you see what they're saying? God, this miracle has shaken up Jerusalem and turned the eyes of the Sanhedrin against us and they hate us. Do it some more. Lord, this miracle has made, has made the religious leadership mad at us. Give us more miracles. Give us boldness. Give us boldness. I, I hope that you can hear this and not take umbrage, but hear it. I, I have feared for some time that the American church had become soft that we just had lost the boldness of the line of the tribe of Judah, that we had begun to seek safety, to get in our churches and pull the doors in behind us and, and encourage one another. 
but we lacked the boldness to say to the community, this is the way to be saved, to reach out with, with power and with authority. I was in uh, Kumasi, Ghana, just after the time. And do any of you remember Idi Amin? He's a horrible Islamic dictator in Uganda, not in Ghana, where I was, but in Uganda, East Africa. It was horrible. Uh, a monster. When I was in Ghana, I met there a pastor from Uganda who had been in the military prison at Kampala for 150 days. And he told me a story. I'm going to share it with you tonight. I'm not trying to shock you, but I just want you to hear this. He said every day they would bring one of his parishioners, a, a man, a woman, sometimes even a child, and he said twice a baby. And they would say, if you will renounce the name of Jesus, we'll let him go. And he said some of them would plead with him, Pastor, just agree. Tell him anything. Don't let him kill me. Don't let him kill me. Just say anything. Others would plead with him the other way. No, Pastor, don't renounce Jesus. I'm ready to go to heaven. I'm ready to go to heaven. But he said every day, 150 days, he would clutch the bars with tears streaming down his face and say to those guards, how can I renounce the Lord of the universe and the author and finisher of my faith? Jesus is Lord. And he said every day, 150 days, those guards took hammers and beat the brains out of those people. He said, they, he said, Dr. Mark, they splashed the blood and brains of my church members on my garments where I clutched the bars. I said, Pastor, I got to tell you, I, I, I don't know if I have that. I said, I, I don't know if I have the grace for that. And he said, you don't standing here. You don't have the grace for that standing here. He said, you don't have grace for that until you need it. He said, I didn't have grace for it until I was in that cell. And every day the grace had to come again, 150 days. He said, now, even now, sometimes I can hear members of my church that I loved weeping and crying, pleading with me, renounce him, renounce Jesus. God won't judge you. I want to live. He said, I can hear those hammers thudding into their skulls. But he said, this one thing I know, when you are in that, if you will believe God and claim his name, God will give you the grace when you need it. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. The context of the church inside of joy and praise and worship and generosity and holy communion and baptism and salvations. This, this is who we are in here. And it's wonderful to us. But in the community and in the world, we need the boldness of the line of the tribe of Judah. We've got to find Christians that can say to their fellow employees on a construction site, that Jesus that you just used his name in vain when you hammered your thumb, I'd like to talk to you at lunch about how he can become the savior of your life. And let me tell you what he's done in my family. We've got to find the boldness. And is it going to always work out for us? Peter and John went to jail and ultimately Peter's killed. 
So the boldness of this is not because we pray, God protect us, God protect us, God protect us. That's how we've been praying. What we need to pray is, God, give me boldness and give me the grace when I'm in that situation. Fill me with boldness. The more they, the more they hate, the more they despise, the more they doubt the miracles, give me more miracles. <laughs> the more they hate the name of Jesus, put it in my mouth more. That's, the, that's what the third and fourth chapters of the book of Acts are about is this rising community of love and faith and joy and generosity and, and hospitality and sharing and its conflict with a world that hates everything it stands for. So that that sweet community of love and grace and sharing and hospitality now rises to become a community of boldness and authority. I pray that every adversarial mayor and every angry secular governor in America will say, I don't know anything else. But these Christians are ignorant, unlearned. But there is something that's going on. There's something that's going on. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes all over the house? Just this one simple thing, if you would pray. Dr. Mark, will you pray for me? Pray for me to have boldness. I just feel like I've been such a weak and, and superficial Christian. Will you pray for me to have the boldness of Pentecost, to be able to open my mouth despite ignorance or lack of learning or anything else, just to say, God, make me bold with my faith. If that's you, then you lift your hand up and say, I, I, I need that. I need that. That's what I need. Wow. Wow. So many hands. So many hands. I I got to tell you, it's a pretty dangerous prayer. I just take your hands down. Look up here. Wait a minute. Look up here. I don't want you to raise your hand to that unless you mean it, because God could like, see, do it. So I just want you to hear what I'm saying. What you're going to do is raise your hand and say, all right, I want this. The boldness, the, the authority, the boldness to speak up. It doesn't mean everybody's going to like you. You do understand that, right? It could cost you as it cost them. I just want to make sure that we're clear. This is not a, just a little church prayer. This is risky. Amen? Now close your eyes one more time. Now I'll ask if you would say, okay, having reconsidered, I believe I'll just keep my hand in my lap. But if you would say, yes, this is what I want, the boldness of Pentecost. Now you lift your hand. There's even more. I can't discourage you people. Heavenly Father, you see our hands. Mine is raised. Here are my Lord. Send me. Fill my mouth with good tidings. Give me the fearlessness in front of the magistrates and the religious leadership. Give me boldness, love and grace and gentleness. Yes, Lord, generosity and, and hospitality. But Lord, give me the boldness of Pentecost. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.